Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. The latter years of a person's life unfortunately involve making arrangements for when they die. These arrangements typically include organising their finances, writing a will, and planning a funeral. Thankfully, services exist that can assist in these situations, but as is often the case during this time, a vulnerable person can be susceptible to being exploited. Some people are willing to prey on the elderly in order to better their own situation, and some will go even further than taking money. Welcome to Season 8, Episode 29 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime.
It was around 2.30pm on the afternoon of Saturday, November 16, 2002, when nurse Catherine Dawson arrived at a bungalow on Rayleigh Close. Catherine had already called at the property in Broken Cross Macclesfield twice that day, but the occupant, 71-year-old Joan Bedison, hadn't answered the door. Catherine had no reason to suspect that something had happened to Joan as she was only there for a routine checkup, but Catherine was concerned as calls to the home went unanswered. The sand-coloured brick-built detached bungalow was quiet and the curtains were drawn. This was unusual as Joan was exceptionally house-proud and had lived on the cul-de-sac for over 15 years. Catherine walked around the property and peered in through the bedroom window. Through a small opening between the curtains, she could see someone lying under the covers on the bed. Catherine decided to call the police and ask them to do a welfare check. A uniformed constable from the Cheshire Constabulary was the first to arrive. He found the back patio door unlocked and he and Catherine walked into the home. When they entered the bedroom, they saw a female's legs hanging off the edge of the bed, as if she were about to stand up. On the floor next to the bed was a radio, tuned to the frequency for Radio 4, but all that could be heard was static. Catherine Dawson recognised the woman on the bed as Joan Bedison. Recalling how Joan was gripping a bloody pillow, the nurse later said. Her hands were tightly closed like a fist. She looked angry. Her face was screwed up. Catherine and the officer had a closer look at Joan. Her mouth was open and the corner of the pillow was bloodstained. Catherine later said, Her nose was squashed to one side where the pillow was. It looked like she had been struggling. It looked as though she was trying to get out of bed because her feet were on the floor. Had the nurse and police officer been less observant, they might have assumed it to be a natural death. But considering the more puzzling aspects of the scene, investigators were swiftly called. It was a tragic end for a woman who had recently overcome a significant health issue. Born in Stockport in 1931, Joan was the only child of Annie and Eric Bedison. Eric's father, Hastings Royce Bedison, was a prominent figure in Bredbury and Romilly. After retiring from a career as a railway official, he became the secretary of the Romilly Conservative Club. It was at the club in 1935 that Hastings collapsed suddenly and died of heart failure during a meeting in the smoking room. His five children, including Eric, were pallbearers at his largely attended funeral a few weeks later. Eric worked as a gardener and a caretaker while Annie took care of the domestic duties with their daughter, Joan. Joan was raised in Bredbury and attended local schools until the death of her mother when she was just 15 years old. Her father died a year later, 
so Joan moved in with her aunt and uncle who also lived in Bredbury. They were close, and after her aunt Kath's death, Joan continued living with her uncle Norman. She never married or started a family of her own, but she was content. When her uncle Norman died in 1984, Joan was the sole beneficiary of his estate. She inherited his home and assets, some of which she sold in order to purchase a newly built bungalow on Rayleigh Close in Broken Cross, Macclesfield. It was something her uncle Norman had always wanted to do. Joan Bederson was active in several church and social groups. She was part of the congregation at Broken Cross Methodist Church and sang in the choir. After retiring from her career as a tax clerk, Joan became a member of the Macclesfield Probus Club, a group for retired professionals. Joan was a lover of music and would attend shows by the Halle Orchestra in Manchester every month. She also loved travelling and completed a solo trek through the Canadian Rockies in the early 90s. When she wasn't out with church friends or neighbours, Joan liked to listen to the radio and read the Times newspaper, delivered to her home every day. The property on Rayleigh Close was immaculate, and her relatives often commented how Joan had almost recreated her Uncle Norman's home in the new bungalow. Joan was an independent and private woman. It was only when she was diagnosed with cancer and required surgery to have a tumour removed that she reluctantly accepted help from a friend during her recovery. Joan's closest relatives, her cousin Alfred and his daughter Susan, were informed of Joan's sudden passing. They were devastated, especially as Alfred had wanted Joan to move closer to him and his family but she was determined to stay in Macclesfield. Forensic officers arrived at Joan Bederson's home to document the surroundings at the time of her death. Her body was removed to a local hospital for a post-mortem to try and establish how she died and if there were any suspicious circumstances. As the investigators waited for the results, they spoke with some of Joan's neighbours. Detectives were told about a man who visited Joan often, and neighbours believed his name was Peter. A search of the home uncovered signed paperwork revealing that Joan had loaned a large sum of money to a man named Peter Crittenden. Crittenden called the Macclesfield police station three days after Joan's body was discovered. During a conversation with an officer, he explained that he was the beneficiary of her will. Peter Crittenden was brought in for questioning, and he began telling investigators how he knew Joan Bederson. In late 2000, Joan had been reading the Times newspaper as she did every day when she saw an advertisement offering financial advice posted by Young Ridgeway and Associates. She contacted the agency and began speaking with Peter Crittenden, 
a personal financial advisor who had been working in the industry for around 30 years. The tall, well-presented 61-year-old lived in the Rainbow Hill area of Worcester with Iris, his wife of over 40 years. Their three adult children, James, Richard and Elizabeth, had long flown the nest, but Crittenden kept busy with his clients who included Joan Bederson. Detectives from the Cheshire Constabulary found documents in Joan's home dated June 2001, around a year and a half before her death, that showed she had loaned over £270,000 to Crittenden. It was to be repaid at a rate of 10% per year. Crittenden was asked why she would lend money to her financial advisor. He admitted that he had been having an affair with Joan since their third meeting in early 2001, and she had wanted him to use the money in whatever way he saw fit. The company he worked for on a commission basis did not know that he was acting on Joan's behalf, but documents revealed that by May 2001, Joan had moved over £290,000 from her bank account to Crittenden's. Armed with evidence that Peter Crittenden had been in enormous debt, £140,000 across loans and credit cards, he was charged with theft. The results of two post-mortems of Joan Bederson's body had been inconclusive, but when a detective found an insurance policy Crittenden had taken out on Joan's life, a third examination was ordered. Crittenden was bailed in March 2003 while the investigation continued. In 2001, Joan Bederson had been diagnosed with cancer and needed major surgery. While recovering at a friend's home, she told them she had done a silly thing and admitted having second thoughts about giving so much of her money away. She had been advised to contact the police, but Joan didn't want to get the authorities involved. After her death, the letter she had addressed to Crittenden had been found in her living room. It read, Peter, I want to say something to you. I won't be seeing you anymore because it is upsetting me being deceitful and having to tell lies. I love you with all my heart and it's best if it ends now while we are best of friends. It isn't getting me anywhere and another thing is I am older than you. So will you please wind up all my money? The relationship didn't end. And on November 12, 2002, several days before she died... Peter Crittenden took Joan out for dinner at a hotel close to her home. He told detectives, She was fine, full of life as it were. Crittenden claimed that after the meal they went back to Joan's home in Broken Cross and she told him she loved him. They were intimate and he stayed the night. The next morning he went home to his wife in Worcester. While reviewing Crittenden's finances, the police found a receipt for petrol he purchased at a service station in the Worcester area of Blackpool in the early hours of November 15th, 
a short time before Joan Bederson was believed to have died. After refuelling at the service station soon after midnight, Rittenden's car, which had been paid for by Joan, was picked up by automatic number plate recognition cameras on the M5 heading towards Macclesfield. Less than four hours later, his car was spotted again travelling south around 45 minutes from Macclesfield. The investigators believe that Crittenden was angry when Joan tried to end the relationship and he had taken out a life insurance policy that decreased each year. The policy would have dropped by £15,000 in January 2003, so the detectives believe that Crittenden had killed Joan to obtain the most money possible from her death. During the second search of Joan's bungalow, forensic officers found a second bloodstained pillow in the guest room. They believed the blood which matched Joan's DNA had come from her mouth as she was suffocated. Detectives surmised that Peter Crittenden had left the back patio door unlocked when he left Joan's home on November 13th, which allowed him to get into the property undetected several days later to kill her. With that theory in mind, the third post-mortem was conducted by Home Office pathologist Dr. Paul Johnson on June 5th, 2002. Dr. Johnson found injuries consistent with Joan being asphyxiated with a pillow. There was also bruising to her upper lip, abrasions on her face, and bruises on her collarbone, elbow and wrist, indicating she was injured in a struggle before her death. Peter Crittenden was arrested the following day and charged with three counts of theft relating to the almost £280,000 he had taken from Joan Bederson in 2001 and one count of murder. Crittenden denied the charges and was remanded into custody until his trial. Joan Bederson's funeral was held at Broken Cross Methodist Church on September 9th, 2003, almost ten months after she had been found dead at her home. The service was led by Reverend David Bannister, who spoke of his sadness and shock. He said, I don't think anyone ever got to know the real Joan. She was a very private and independent and gentle woman who kept herself to herself. I remember even when it was fiercely raining outside, she wouldn't let anyone give her a lift. She was very much her own person. I found her to be very vulnerable in some ways, and she was very quiet and timid. It took a while to get to know her. The Reverend recalled how Joan's faith had been an integral part of her recovery, and when she was in remission from cancer, she decided to give back to the church. Joan made a donation after witnessing older worshippers who had difficulty kneeling down because of arthritis. Reverend Bannister told the congregation that the money had been used to buy church kneelers, which were dedicated to Joan's memory. 
following the service which was attended by around two dozen people who knew and loved Joan. A casket was taken to St Mark's Cemetery in Bradbury where Joan was buried close to her parents. Her closest relatives were still struggling with the revelation that Joan had been involved with a man for over a year without their knowledge, but they had to wait until the trial began to learn more. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. 
Listen to the rise and fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Legal proceedings began at Chester Crown Court on May 13th, 2004. Opening for the Crown, Lord Alex Carlyle QC told the court that Peter Crittenden was rotten to the core. Those of you who follow the popular soap Coronation Street may call to mind the character of Richard Hillman as a bit of an example. Behind the veil of trust and middle-class respectability and apparent affluence, lurked a calculating and even diabolical mind motivated only by the prospect of personal financial survival and gain. To achieve this, he was prepared to groom Miss Bedison, so she became all too easy a victim of his abuse of her trust and character. Lord Carlyle then went on to say, This defendant took first Joan Bedison's confidence into his own hands. Then he took her person by seducing her. Then he took her money by having her sign it all over to him. Then he took her estate by changing her will and finally he took her life. We submit that by taking her life, he had the prospect of not only solving his own considerable financial problems, but also of leaving himself with financial gains that could have cushioned his own eventual retirement. The prosecutor described how Joan had met Crittenden in late 2000, when she answered an advertisement offering financial advice in a national newspaper. The court heard that Crittenden's wealth of experience as a financial planner made it easy for him to spot a potential target. Lord Carlyle QC said, He is an expert at recognising vulnerability and naivety, not least in some elderly women. He knows how to appeal to the romantic or sexual or longing side of their nature. Peter Crittenden had been appointed as Joan's financial advisor, and according to the prosecution, he had lured her into a relationship to obtain over half a million pounds. Joan had inherited assets worth over £340,000, and had used money she received after her uncle's death to purchase the bungalow in Macclesfield. Crittenden had written a list of what he advised Joan to do. It read, Sell your house, instruct agent, move to hotel in Worcester. During her relationship with Crittenden, Joan had cashed in her assets and named Crittenden as the sole beneficiary of her will, but she hadn't sold her bungalow. The prosecutor said, If carried out, that would have given him every penny she had, every stick of furniture, every possession, the china, the ornaments, the pictures, the lot. Within four months of meeting Crittenden, Joan had sold her investments worth £250,000 and gave the proceeds to Crittenden. Two months later, she moved almost £300,000 from her Abbey National account into Crittenden's. Paperwork suggested that the funds were described as a loan, gift or joint investment. Eventually, Joan decided to end the relationship, and the letter she wrote indicated that she wanted her money back. 
The prosecution implied that this was what drove Peter Crittenden to kill her, as he had used the money to fund his and his family's lifestyle and pay off an enormous amount of debt. Lord Carlyle QC told the jury, if she persisted in this, Mr Crittenden had no way back from total personal ruin. He had overestimated her naivety, underestimated her determination, so he hatched in his mind his dreadful plan to murder her. The prosecutor argued that Peter Crittenden had snuck out of his home before driving 85 miles to Jones in Macclesfield. He entered through an unlocked patio door and smothered her with a pillow as she slept. Furthermore, according to the prosecution, Joan had not been the first vulnerable woman to fall victim to the defendant. Lord Carlisle QC said that Crittenden had used the same scheme to dupe a woman named Gwyneth Griffiths in 1990. Gwyneth was 60 years old at the time, and after they started an affair, Crittenden convinced Gwyneth to name him as the beneficiary in her will before he began spending her money. Lord Carlisle QC said, The affair continued until his arrest. An affair conducted during his afternoon visits to her home and from time to time in hotels. The prosecutor suggested that Crittenden carried Viagra in his briefcase, along with the documents he used to defraud older women. Lord Carlisle QC believed that Gwyneth was lucky to be alive, and only survived because, unlike Joan, she had not asked for the money back. Seventy-three-year-old Gwyneth Griffiths took the stand at Chester Crown Court. She described how she had come to be in a relationship with Peter Crittenden over a decade earlier. Gwyneth had worked for a pharmaceutical company in Pontypool before she retired and had seen an advert offering personal financial advice in 1988. Gwyneth had inherited almost £200,000 from a relative and received £30,000 in a redundancy payout. She wanted advice on how to invest her money after taking early retirement at the age of 58. The Welsh native had lost her long-term partner shortly before she met Crittenden. Within two years of becoming her financial advisor, Crittenden began a sexual relationship with the woman who was ten years his senior. Much like Joan, the defendant made a list of what he would advise Gwyneth to do, which included selling her assets and moving closer to him. In this instance, Gwyneth had taken his advice and moved into a flat in Pershaw, just over five miles from where Crittenden lived with his family in Worcester. During the following year, Crittenden convinced Gwyneth to loan him sums of money in various amounts for different reasons. They included £30,000 to repair his home, £85,000 to invest in property ventures, £20,000 to fund the development of an invention that would reduce fuel consumption, £30,000 to convert a derelict building into a shopping centre, and £10,000 for Crittenden's son to start a CV writing business. 
Gwyneth was subsequently told that none of the businesses had taken off and the fuel consumption invention was never produced. The witness testified that Crittenden had only partially repaid the first £30,000 loan. When asked why she kept following his investment advice and lending him money when he did not pay it back, Gwyneth replied, I just assumed he was giving me good advice. I don't remember what I did with the money. I didn't even realise until we were adding up these documents that I had as much as I did. Three years into the affair, when Peter Crittenden told Gwyneth that his car was not working and he needed a way to get to work, she gave him a 1990 Honda Accord. By 1997, Gwyneth had written a will leaving everything to Crittenden. Gwyneth had also given Crittenden's son and daughter-in-law £3,500 for a deposit on their new home. His ex-daughter-in-law, Laura Edwards, said that the Crittenden family called Gwyneth the Griff, and she was known to be generous with her money. Laura said, We all use that expression. It was a pet name for an elderly client in Pershaw. When Lord Carlyle QC asked Gwyneth Griffiths what it was about Peter Crittenden that made him so convincing, she was overcome with emotion and said, You know why, because I thought such a lot of him. Gwyneth had stayed in a relationship with Crittenden for 13 years until she learned of his arrest. She told the court, I had strong feelings for the defendant and I assumed he was giving me good advice. I trusted him in everything. I should have been more indignant. He doesn't seem to have thought much of me. Peter Crittenden had also tried to win over Gwyneth's friend Annie Roy Barker in the same month Joan Bedison died. The Southampton-based psychotherapist and professional speaker said she could tell from the start that he was a womaniser and there was an incredible arrogance about him. In July 2004, Annie told a reporter for the Manchester Evening News that Crittenden had invited her back to his hotel room and advised her to buy his mother-in-law's home. She wasn't convinced. Annie Roy Barker said, Maybe I have a better understanding of human nature than most because I am a psychotherapist and I analyse people's motives. However, he was very plausible. Con men always are. They wouldn't be good at it if they weren't. I'm not surprised that people fell for him. He was very professional looking, but it was all on the surface. Further testimony came from Detective Sergeant Thomas, who spoke about how Peter Crittenden had called the police station within days of Joan's death. The detective said that the defendant was nervous and inquisitive on the call after informing the officer that he was the beneficiary of Joan's estate. Detective Sergeant Thomas stated, It was not the attitude of someone who had lost a loved one. The court heard how Crittenden, who was initially charged with theft, 
was later suspected of murder when the investigators discovered that he had taken a life insurance policy out on Joan Bedison. The credit card receipt for petrol and automatic number plate recognition cameras showed that he had travelled from Worcester along the M5 towards Joan's home on the night of the murder. A few hours later, his car was seen again travelling back towards his home. Brittenden had been driving a car Joan had paid for. Statements from her friends had indicated that Joan had a change of heart about lending Crittenden hundreds of thousands of pounds. Letters and documents were recovered from her home, and evidence was presented by a handwriting expert about how a signature purported to be Joan's had been forged. Nurse Catherine Dawson, along with a police officer, had discovered Joan Bedison's body. Catherine said, The pillow was on her head, and for her nose to be squashed like that, you would have to use force on the pillow. A pathologist testified about their findings during a third post-mortem, which supported the contention that Joan had been suffocated. A second bloodstained pillow had been found in the guest bedroom, which was believed to have been used to push the first pillow down onto Joan's face to asphyxiate her. This was evidenced not only by blood spatter, after she had coughed during her final desperate attempts to breathe, but also by facial bruising and abrasions. That said, the defendant's DNA and fingerprints had not been found at the scene. During the third week of the trial, 64-year-old Peter John Crittenden took the stand in his own defence. Under questioning by his barrister, Peter Hughes QC, the defendant told the court that he had been born in Uganda but moved to Middlesex, where he studied to become an accountant for five years. Crittenden ultimately failed his final exams, and began working as a financial advisor around the same time. He married his wife Iris in 1962. According to Crittenden, he was among the, quote, pioneers of the unit link trust field, which is a collective investment where each investor pulls their funds into a single trust, allowing them to spread the risk across the syndicate. The defendant prided himself on being a workaholic who had no problem travelling long distances to meet clients or working unsociable hours. I work hard and I play hard, Crittenden told the court. Speaking about his relationship with 73-year-old Gwyneth Griffiths, whom he had convinced to move from Wales to Worcester and loan him over £130,000, Crittenden said... I think initially she was very much more in love with me, and I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't spurn her. I'm not proud of what happened. Crittenden admitted taking loans from Gwyneth. She would loan me money and money to my son Richard. I paid back some of the loans, but not all. The defendant admitted using the money to buy a caravan, to do up his house, pay off his debts and go on holiday to Venice. 
He also confessed that he had set up a betting account for himself and Gwyneth. It was Joan Bedison's money, but Gwyneth didn't know that. I thought it was a good investment, and overall we came out winners. Questioned about Joan and the funds she had given him in early 2001, Crittenden replied, Joan wanted me to have the money. She didn't want to be bothered with the paperwork that was attached to conventional investments. It was agreed in an action plan meeting that these investments would be sold, and she would then give the money to me to invest as I thought appropriate. She was quite clear that money was going to be a gift. She said, Peter, you have the money. Treat it as your own. She said, look, Peter, it's either a question of having a bonfire on the lawn and burning the money and losing it that way, or I can give it to you and we can have some fun and games with it. Crittenden maintained that Joan could have asked for the money back at any point, even though he considered the funds a gift. The action plan Crittenden had referred to was a bullet point list in which he recommended Joan sell her home in Macclesfield, move to Worcester, and write a new will to make him the sole beneficiary. When asked whether he thought Joan should have spoken to someone else before writing the will, Crittenden responded, Wonderful thing, hindsight. Perhaps in retrospect I would have asked her to get it checked over, but I'm happy with the will itself. There was nothing illegal about it. It was something she wanted to do. So what was the point in delaying it? The defendant was asked by his barrister if he had killed Joan Pedersen. No, I had no reason to do it he replied. I've never done anything like that in my life. Even running a dog over in the road is something I get upset about. Crittenden repeated the same story he told the police. He had taken Joan out for a meal at a hotel two miles from her home on November 12th, four days before her body was found. Under cross-examination by Lord Carlisle QC, Peter Crittenden was asked why his car was spotted driving towards Macclesfield in the early hours of November 15th. The defendant replied, After I left the petrol station, I went straight home to bed with my wife Iris because I had a busy day the next day. I was not driving the car. I was at home in bed with my wife Iris. I have no idea how my car was recorded there. Lord Carlisle QC asked, Had Worcestershire been invaded by car-driving aliens that night? Weren't you heading north towards Macclesfield where you had already unlocked the patio door ready for you to go and kill Miss Bedison? Wouldn't it be better to show a bit of remorse at this early part of the investigation? Look at the jury and give them an explanation. Peter Crittenden said he could not explain why his car was there, but as a Christian who had sworn on the Bible, he had spoken the truth. Lord Carlisle QC asked Crittenden about a phone call he had made from his mobile phone to Joan's home late on November 14th, which lasted three minutes. Crittenden had not told the police about the call 
and claimed he couldn't remember what they spoke about. Lord Carlyle QC responded, Wasn't the shock of discovering her dead cause to remember the last conversation you had with Joan Bedison? He didn't come flowing back how you told her that you loved her. Investigators had discovered that Peter Crittenden had installed an answering machine in Joan's home a few weeks before her death and had left several messages on it the day after he was alleged to have killed her. The prosecution argued Crittenden had done so to deflect suspicion. Dismissing the suggestion, Crittenden said, If I had killed Joan Bedison, I would have done a darn sight better job. Asked why he had not spoken to anyone after he was informed of Joan's death, he replied, I keep my emotions to myself. I was in a state of shock. Lord Carlyle QC inquired about a get-well-soon card Crittenden sent Joan when she was receiving cancer treatment. In the correspondence, Crittenden had written, In spite of everything, I still have sunny thoughts. By the way, the cancer that I have is a little better. The prosecution alleged that as a way to get closer to Joan, who was being treated for cancer, Grittenden lied about being diagnosed. It was confirmed that Crittenden had never received cancer treatment, and when asked what he was referring to, he said he had been in a friend's sauna when a doctor had advised him to get his moles checked out. After Lord Carlyle QC asked for the doctor's name, Crittenden replied, I'm sorry, when I'm in a sauna with a stranger, I don't go into the minutiae. Without missing a beat, the prosecutor responded by saying, Well, he certainly had a good look at your minutiae, didn't he? Jurors heard about how Joan had entrusted hundreds of thousands of pounds to Crittenden within three months of meeting him, much like Gwyneth Griffiths had done over a 13-year period. Lord Carlyle QC suggested that Crittenden had been trying to control their lives, to which the defendant replied, I'm not somebody who goes about stealing clients' money. I have been in the business for over 30 years and I could have done it umpteen times. It is not in my nature. Crittenden admitted to using Viagra to have sex with the elderly women he was allegedly conning, having first been prescribed it around the same time his sexual relationship with Joan began in early 2001. Lord Carlyle QC said, It was a cynical desire on your part that you could achieve almost as much with Joan Bedison as you had financially with Gwyneth Griffiths. But you didn't fancy Joan Bedison, so you needed to take Viagra to give yourself a bit of sexual vigour. Rittenden insisted that he loved Joan, and she loved him, prompting the prosecutor to respond, There is no doubt that she was in love with you. Otherwise, she wouldn't have acted so foolishly. Lord Carlyle QC put it to the defendant that he had taken Joan out to dinner and spent more time with her in the latter half of 2002 because he was in debt and needed her money. The prosecutor told the court that Crittenden had also set up a life insurance policy for Joan 
and he only had a few weeks to cash in the premium before it dropped to a lesser value. Lord Carlisle QC suggested that Crittenden had taken Joan out for a meal and had sex with her on November 12th, so he could unlock her patio door without her realising, before quietly entering her home several days later so he could kill her. After closing arguments, jurors deliberated for seven hours. The jury of five women and seven men arrived at unanimous decisions. As the verdicts were read aloud, Peter Crittenden stared at jurors and shook his head while saying no, no, no. Crittenden was found guilty of three counts of theft and one count of murder. On July 1st, 2004, Elgin Edwards QC, who had presided over the trial, addressed Peter Crittenden before passing sentence. The judge explained to the defendant that for the crime of murder, he was facing a mandatory life sentence. Elgin Edwards QC felt Crittenden's actions were cold and calculating, as he showed a vulnerable and elderly woman no mercy and no remorse. However, according to the judge, there were some mitigating factors. I take into consideration your age, previous good character and everything I have learnt about you. But I also have to take into account the aggravating feature of your cold, calculating decision to kill. Aside from the mandatory life sentence imposed, Crittenden was ordered to serve concurrent terms of five years for the thefts. For murder, he would have to spend almost 17 years in prison before he would be eligible for parole. So where are we now? Joan Bederson's family released a statement following the conviction. Joan's second cousin, Susan Parkinson, said... Peter Crittenden saw Joan as a single, lonely and wealthy lady whom he could manipulate to be his solution to the huge debts he had accrued. No one could have imagined as the months have gone by just how matters would have evolved, with each month revealing more and more ill-doings. Joan was a much-loved member of our family, and her life can never be given back to her, but at least today. The man who has taken her life has been found guilty of her murder and the theft of her money. Alfred Bederson, Joan's first cousin and closest relative, spoke exclusively with the Macclesfield Express soon after the trial ended. Alfred wondered what Crittenden had said to Joan in their final phone call hours before her death. Whatever was said upset her so much she left the pots and pans in the sink. There is no way that she would ever do this. She was so house-proud. The bottom of one of those pans was burnt, which makes me think that she was in a very distressed state that night. All I can think is he said he was coming up to see her. Alfred reflected on the trial 
and the toll it took on him and his family, who were grieving the loss of his wife, Margaret. Alfred said, You would think that we got used to sitting in court day after day, but when they started talking about the members of my family, I broke down. I broke down and cried. It has been a terrible time for us. We are mentally and physically exhausted. I felt sick to my stomach the last couple of days. The worst part of this has been the waiting, but now we know that he has got what he deserved. He doesn't bring her back, but we are nonetheless delighted with the verdict. Peter Crittenden's wife of over 40 years, who had allegedly walked in on Crittenden in bed with one of his elderly clients, insisted that she would be standing by her husband despite his conviction. Iris provided a statement to the evening news. The last 15 months have been a time of immense stress for our family and friends, and the time taken has been a travesty of justice. Iris complained about the length of time Crittenden had spent behind bars awaiting trial and said it was a waste of public resources when he was considered innocent. She continued, It has been a very steep learning curve for two OAPs and has brought us into contact with parts of society we had never expected to join. Neither myself nor Peter Crittenden had ever had any connections with the criminal courts in our lives and it is only through the strength and support of family and friends that we have reached this far without losing our sanity. Iris voiced her horror when describing the lack of support for relatives after a loved one is charged, and said she had been treated as an irrelevance by officials. In response to Iris's statement, Peter Crittenden's ex-daughter-in-law Laura Edwards who had been married to his son Richard, offered her thoughts about Iris and the statement her ex-mother-in-law gave. She has shown her true colours. I cannot believe the arrogance of the woman. Who does she think murdered that woman? He was tried fair and square. It was not a waste of taxpayers' money to keep him behind bars. He's a criminal. When I heard what she has said, the very first thought that crossed my mind was why has she not offered any sympathy to the dead woman and her family? Instead, she went on about the stress caused by the time it took to bring him to justice. Well, that speaks volumes about the sort of people they really are. They are nasty, and I'm glad to be out of it. In December 2004, over two years after Joan Bederson had been murdered, Peter Crittenden was ordered to surrender over £290,000 under the Criminal Justice Act. Offering her thoughts about the development, Joan's cousin Susan said, No money can compensate for the loss of her life. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our patrons for their support. 
For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.